everyone, and welcome to our podcast, Clear as Mud, where we talk to game developers from all walks of life about their personal and professional journeys. I'm your host, Graham Waldrop. As always, our show is presented by Mudstack, the only asset management and collaboration tool custom-built for game studios and digital artists. For more information, head over to mudstack.com. Today, we're talking with Darren Yeomans, Studio Director at Adam Hawk Design Limited. Darren has worked in the game industry for over 30 years as an artist, an outsourced teams manager, and now a studio director. The show is packed with great stuff. We talk about the differences between working in the industry in its nascent stages compared to now, Darren's experience working on 50 Cent, Blood on the Sand, and how Adam Hawk has established itself as one of the premier game development outsourced studios in the world, having worked on games in the FIFA series, PUBG, and Halo. So outsourcing is a huge, huge part of this episode, and it's really cool because Darren has been the outsourcer, and now he is the outsourcee. So he's seen both sides of the fence. He knows what works. He knows what doesn't. If you have any issues with outsourcing with your own teams, um, this is a great episode to listen to because Darren has a load of wisdom to drop on you. And the 50 Cent story is also amazing. Um, I don't want to spoil anything, but it's, it's really cool learning how that game came to be. So without further ado, here's Darren. So Darren, tell me what sort of made you want to move into doing this outsourcing stuff? Because um, I think it's really cool, all the all the projects that you've worked on from like PUBG to, to Halo and the FIFA and so many others um, that your company has worked on. What made you really want to get into that and help out these uh, other teams making games? Uh, yeah, I suppose it was complete accident really um at the time i was working for swordfish studios uh and it got to the point where you know we realized that you can no longer make AAA games with just the kind of 60 people in your office and you needed more help to do that because the game's getting bigger and more sophisticated uh, and at the time i was a lead artist there um, but i'm one of these artists whose you know brain both sides of the brain works the creative side and the kind of logical side are, are quite equal um, so I was the kind of artist who would just generally get things done and organize people and make sure the schedule was on time and the work was kind of divvied out properly. Um, so when it came to kind of looking at help and getting extra people to do the work for, you know, to get the game out, uh, they just came to me kind of naturally and said, well, we need to look at this outsourcing thing. We, we don't know what it is. We don't know who's out there. Off you go. <laughs> and um, it was really good, actually. They They gave me a good good 12 months to really get to know the lay of the land. Um, I visited China and a few studios there, visited India and a few studios there and kind of realized the amount of people that, that were available to us and the kind of skill set they had. Um, so I was able to set up a pipeline for the studio to make sure that we had the outsourcing pipeline to create and continue to create the AAA games that we were doing. So going into that, it became apparent very quickly that I could no longer be an artist and do that as well. There was just too much work involved. Um, so it's around about 2007, I think it was. Um, I had to make a decision. Do I stick with art or do I go into management full-time? And and that's where I went, went into management full-time. So that's kind of um, my journey took a swing then and, and took me to where I am now, um, which is great. Uh, and, and that's one of the things that you you kind of look for in your career, those those opportunities and those chances. Uh, you never know where they're going to take you. So I always just jump on it when I can. But obviously, you've got to make sure you're ready for that when that opportunity comes. 
So doing doing that kind of role since kind of 2007 made it really easy for me uh, when I joined Atomhawk because Atomhawk are on the other side of the fence. You know, we're we're the we're the ones that help out all these clients all over the world with all their great games. So I had a great insight of what do dev studios need. Uh, how can we kind of really make that happen for them? How can we ease the pain for them? So that transition was uh, quite natural for me. And you already sound like you were pretty good at, at managing people before you went full time into managing as well, or at least getting things organized. So having that experience, you know, getting your hands dirty in the day-to-day grind also must must just have been really helpful for when you transition full-time into management. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, one of the th- things of, of being a full-time artist uh, at that point was that I, I kind of knew if someone was trying to pull the wall over my eyes and say, oh, you know, that's going to take this amount of time and, oh, we can't do that with this. And, you know, I, I knew full well that what was available and what was doable. So it was good to say, well, actually, you know, that's not going to take you three weeks. That'll take you a week tops. And, so it was, it was really good from that point of view and being able to schedule and kind of, you know, manage some of those relationships that you have, especially in the early days with outsourcing. You know, it, was, um, it wasn't quite the kind of Wild West um, that early dev was, but it was certainly, you know, finding, having to find its feet very quickly. Yeah, I think that's um, one of the things that sort of bugged me when I did work more in the in the industry was, you know, I, I did like production things and things like that. But and I, and I knew how to three D model and, and and texture and things like that. I wasn't very good at it, but I mean, like I knew that you know the basic principles of it. But I never like really worked on a team where I, that was my role. So even though I knew kind of like what it took to perform those duties, it was always like. Well, I really don't know at the same time. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things that you just get confident with and, and build up over time. Um, you know, when I started, it was all pixel-based. Um, and then when 3D came along, you had to learn that. So that's one of the things I always tell um, you know, people who, who ask me for advice, you know, students or, or anybody else. You have to, have to take your time and you have to kind of learn as you're going. And it's one of those industries that you're constantly learning and constantly trying out new methods. Because you'll do a game for like three to five years and you'll use one specific method and, and one engine for doing that. And then the next game you do, you probably never use that same method again. You, you're constantly progressing. So making sure you've got all of that knowledge and, and keeping that going um, really does help as well gain your confidence and, and be able to set you up for you know, scheduling and, and having conversations with people who who are you know going to be charging you millions for work they're doing. Yeah, like this, this is you know, one of the industries where you really can never get comfortable Something new is always around the bend, uh, engine-wise, technology-wise. Absolutely. Um, and like you know, the differences—the differences between working you know on a proprietary engine versus a, an Unreal, uh, a Unity. Yeah, and you know, when you talk about kind of you know in-house engines, they they all seem to want to do what Unreal and Unity do anyway. So you know, you might, you might as well just get on that and uh, and crack on with that. Um, you know, some have got the you know engines that have developed over, well, decades now, if, if I'm thinking back to some of the games I used to work on, that, um, you know, a little bit changes every time and it gets this big unweirdly beast then that, you know, if you have to send out um, you know, part of your engine to any of the outsourcers to, to look at and try and, you know, get things in game for you, it, it does cause um, some issues. So anything that you can use that's, you know, like an Unreal or a Unity that's kind of universally known and used, it's, it's always a good thing to do. So when you first went on that journey, that sort of year-long journey to figure out how outsourcing works, how did that change? How did your plan sort of evolve um, over time as you started to gather more information? 
Yeah, well, that, that's exactly it. It was just, you know, gathering information. It was, you know, jumping on the internet and just typing in outsourcing and see what it spat out at the time. So we were able to to get a good list together. Uh, first put a call was obviously just to, to talk to these guys. So, you know, we'd, we'd jump on a phone call and just see what the communication was like. Because obviously, you know, you're talking to people in, in China or India who, you know, English isn't their first language. So that first thing you right. must do is make sure that communication is there for you. So we're able to kind of write off a few straight away because we just couldn't get the communication over the phone done. And that was really important at the time. And then we went through and, you know, got to know them and had a few conversations with the teams that were in China and India uh, and then sent, sent out some some tests. And it was the same kind of head test that we, we sent out, um, which involved some hair and you know how they were going to approach that. And, and the really, really interesting thing was you could tell which region it was when it came back. Because even though we gave them reference uh, of the character, they had their own twist on that, their own kind of um, regional twist. So, you know, the Indian ones would come back with a slight Indian feel to them, uh, with you know, to the character's face. And the Chinese one would have a slight Chinese twist to it as well. So that was quite interesting at the beginning and, and seeing, well, yeah, this is, this is going to be a cultural thing. You know, we're going to have to look beyond just throwing work at them and hoping it's going to come back. So quite very early on, I realized that the best way of working with, with outsourcing was to treat them like intern, intern teams. We didn't just throw work at them because communication would break down. It would be too much trouble doing that. So we took real time to embed their teams with our teams. And I think we, we're one of the first studios to really do that and, and concentrate on that. Because I remember some of the conversations I was having in the early days, it was just like, yeah, we just give them you know, 50 briefs to do and we expect it back in a month. And it's like, well, you know, you've got to, you've got to make them feel part of the team. It's, you know, it's something that you want to include them with. We often found we got better results because they just felt more invested in what we were doing. So, so me going out and we, we chose three um, partners in the, in the end to, to work with us. So there was our go-tos, there was our second one, and then there was our kind of lucky dip, if you like, and you know, see how they get on because they're really nice people and we'll, we'll see how we get on with them. And the third one's ended up working out the best for us because I think they appreciated all of the work we put into that relationship to make sure that they felt part of the team and knew exactly where we were going and, and kind of were fully invested in it. That we were, we were able then to, towards the end, we were running a bit short on time, which you know Dev usually does. And we just said to them, look, we need another section doing of this environment. You know the environment, you've worked on it before. Can you do something for us? Uh, and they went off and, and they did that and it worked out really well for us. Which is great, and it's it's not always the case because um, what I found over the years is that you know outsource studios are very very good at doing what you've asked them to do. That's their business. That's what they're set up to do. They are really good at doing that. Where they kind of struggle is if you ask them to add anything creatively to that. Thinking within the genre, thinking within the style that you've got, and going, okay, we understand this, and we're confident now. We could offer more for you. You know, working at, at Atom Hawk now and, and being you know on the other side of the fence, that's something that we realize and and we offer more value to our clients. And I think that's why you know, they keep coming back, which is which is absolutely perfect. Consequently, I would imagine that makes you guys feel like you're part of their team, being able to have that agency, be able to come to the table with a perspective. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we always make sure that we integrate with, you know, which, whatever engine they're using, whatever methods they're using. Um, you know, what are the protocols they've got, we always amend ourselves to that. Um, you know, we've got quite a big production team. So, 
we take that kind of hurt out of the managing of projects with that. Um, and that's one thing I noticed on the other side when I was in dev, is that I was always looking for that one company who could just take something off me and say, don't worry, we'll get this for you. There's one thing you don't have to worry about, we'll sort that out. Right. So that's one of the ethos I brought and when I became studio director and thought, right, okay, this is something we've got to push on with. We've got to make sure that they want to come to our clients, come to us first because we make life easier for them. And, and that's that's what anybody ever wants is just, you know, get the work back to the quality, to the benchmark on time. And if their life's been made easier, then then that's the service that's, that you can't beat. Before we get into more of what Adam Hawk does, I want to go pretty deep into that, or as deep as you want to go into it. <laughs> um I want to. I, wanna, I sort of want to get to know more about because you've been in the industry for a, for a long time since like the early '90s, right? So it's yeah, like this. This month is my actual. It's my thirtieth anniversary this month. Thirtieth anniversary, man! Yeah. Wow. So yeah, I, I, I sort of want to get like a little bit of perspective on on the early days. You know how you came up in the industry and and sort of day to day life culture, how different it was, and and I'm sure all respects. I mean, we know obviously technologically, but I'm sure culturally and just yeah, how you work with people. So I'd, I'd love to just uh, take a trip back in time 30 years ago. Uh, again, it was a complete accident how I got into the industry. Um, I, I went to college and I was doing graphic design because I was going into advertising. And in the early 90s in the UK, there was a, a big recession, as there seems to be every 10 years or so in the UK. Um, and I was made redundant. So I went to my local job center and kind of signed on for three or four months kind of wondering what do I do now um you know the the job center kind of looked at me and went you're an artist you know we've we've got no jobs for artists what you know what, what do you want to do we can get you a job here or there and I'm not thinking I really want to do you know I really want to stick at art it's you know I've always been creative it's something I've always wanted to do and then um out of the blue uh, December 92 uh, the Oliver twins uh, were setting up their first proper business you know they they started out in their bedroom and you know two or three of them working together to create lots of games and you know they kind of saw there was a uh, a market for that and and they started their first um office in leamington spa and that's where i was living at the time and they put an advert at the job center looking for an artist and the art the job center said you know you're an artist go along to this see what you think and it was absolutely brilliant um you know i was working on uh, an Amiga and you know I was just messing with the pixels because I'd only had very limited kind of um, usage of any kind of computers in the 90s because when obviously growing up in the 70s and 80s you know machines were available but they're very expensive so we just couldn't afford that kind of thing so so you know having this Amiga to play with was absolutely fantastic and it was it just a complete eye-opener for me and they gave me the machine to use over the Christmas period uh, and I came back and showed them what I'd been working on. And they went, yeah, we'll we'll take you on as a junior artist. And I just absolutely fell in love with it straight away. You know, moving pixels about and doing animation with that was was mind-blowing. Really, you know, really interesting. And I kind of mentioned the, the Wild West earlier. And, you know, the early days of dev, certainly in Leamington, it, it felt like that at times. We all lived and breathed computer games and, you know, the projects we were working on. We would work, you know, from nine till six. We'd go, we'd all go to the pub and, you know, have a drink and have some lunch. Uh, then come back and, and play games into, you know, into midnight, one o'clock in the morning. Um, and we'd do that, we did that for about three or four years. And that was just the, the culture at that time. It was, um, it was very male dominated at the time. 
Mm-hmm. Um, there was there was one female in our office who who was the secretary, um, but there was no kind of female devs. So it was it was very much a boys' club. Um, so you know, playing hard, working hard was was you know, seen as the norm. You know, you know, looking back now, you know, you could never do the hours that we were doing then. Some of the programmers would actually have like a jar of coffee next to them and they would just spoon feed coffee into themselves just to try and keep awake because there's no energy drinks or anything. Oh, they wouldn't even make coffee. They just like eat the coffee. Straight, straight from the the (laughs) jar. That's hardcore. It was one of those kind of unsaid rules that, you know, because I'm working hard and I'm putting all of this in, everybody else has to. So you just felt obliged to to work the hours that everybody did, you know, to get the get the jobs done. And it was, you know, it was it was great fun. You know, the the amount of laughs that we used to have after work, you know, um, playing Quake or, or Doom or Duke Nukem, you know, on the LAN. That was, you know, six or seven of you playing, you know, the same game at that time was, was such fun. Yeah, I mean, surprisingly, I've, I've, you know, my wife at the moment, I met her back back then, and she's. She put up with that for for those for those many years, thankfully, and she's still with me now. Um, but it was it was very much you know play hard, work hard. Um, yeah. Thankfully, you know that has changed. Thankfully, there's there's more females in the industry. You know, it's becoming more inclusive. We get more more diversity in there. So it's you know it's a business. You have to come in now with that kind of career head on you. You know where am I going to go? And you know universities kind of give you an idea of what you can do and the kind of track that you can go on. But back in the early days, it was it was just fun. It was just absolute yeah. fun, and which was great. But you know burning the candle at both ends gets to you after a while. It took me eight years before I realised you know I I can't be doing this any longer. You know, I've I've got to slow down somewhere, and it, you know, um, making games isn't my life. It's part of my life. It's a big part of my life, but it's it's not my life. I've got to step back from that. And and thankfully, I you know I did learn that lesson. Was able to kind of get a really good balance back in my life. Um, but but yeah, at the time, quite a few people I worked with just burnt out, and and there wasn't the support that's around now. So you know, kind of anything around mental health wasn't heard of then so you were just left to burn out and it was kind of you know you do or die that's what certainly the kind of uk industry was kind of built on i don't know of any studio that was much different to that at the time everybody wanted to do more everybody wanted to be better everybody was putting the hours in do you think there's anything from those those old days that you that you miss that you that you wish was still part of how the industry works now i miss the ability to be able to have total control over a project that you were on so you know the the, the money you know the money was there it wasn't as great as these today and you know it wasn't as you know in, invested into as it is today knowing that the you know the eight or ten of you in that studio were fully responsible for getting this thing done um you know making sure it played well making sure it was fun um doing all the marketing for it and then going out and finding a publisher for it that, that was really exciting um you know, I suppose right up until the point until you can't get a publisher or, you know, the publisher that you had turned around and says, you know, no, we don't want that now. Um, then you're in, you know, you have to find something else to do very quickly after that. But I suppose it was that kind of camaraderie, that kind of getting together and and making something great with the team that you had. The studios that I've grown more in have been more like that. Um, you know, thankfully being in a position where I was able to foster that uh, and, and make sure that we've got that 
yes, we're going to be creative. Yes, we're going to do a great game. But do you know what? We're not going to kill ourselves doing it. Do you think there's value, though, in you know someone who is really just starting out to put in the extra time, not even necessarily working in the studio, but just outside the studio, doing things on their own, trying to get better, trying to really master their craft, going beyond you know the 40-hour work week sort of thing? I would say... I would say yes, but with the caveat um, is that artists generally tend to draw anyway. They tend to want to create anyway. So, um, you know, when you leave work at six o'clock in the evening, you'll go home and you've got your own project that you're working on, that you're just trying out things and you're working on something better. So I find with artists, it's, you know, they, they generally want to get better anyway. Um, so it's one of those things where we encourage, but also we have to kind of keep in mind of how many hours they're doing, because obviously if they're doing eight hours, nine hours, once they leave work, then that's not a good thing either, you know, because you're still burning the candle at both ends, but this time half of it's for your fulfillment, but it's still draining, it's still mentally exhausting. Uh, and like I say, we're, we're now set up to to be able to identify those things and, and put things in place to go just, well, you know, take a step back, take a week off, chill out, get yourself back to, you know, feeling fresh uh, and then come back swinging as it were. Um, so, I mean, the same with them, um, I, I suppose, programmers, you know, I've, all the programmers I've known over the years, they've always had something going on in the background that they're working on that they're kind of always pushing themselves one of the biggest messages that I take when I do talks at universities, okay, it's great you know, doing what the course has set you uh, and doing it well, but so are the other 100 people in that class. So are all the other thousands over the world doing the exact same thing. If you want to stick out, you're going to have to do a little bit more to get yourself noticed and, and try things out and, and just get better at your craft. Yeah, so like transitioning from from that period to to fifty cent blood on the sand. Because I remember we talked about this before yeah, our yeah. Uh, <laughs> before the podcast. Um, I'm fascinated to hear about this, the stories of of developing that game. And I actually, I think I did actually play it because I used to be uh, back in the day a really big fifty cent fan. And, and do, you know, do you know what? It was, it was a really fun game. You know, yeah. playing snobbery around you know, games. It was it was just fun. It was a, you knew what you were. Going I knew to get. it was fun. Yeah. You guys, like, I can tell, especially after like watching the um, somebody play it on YouTube again. I was like, this this development team is clearly having a blast with this. Like, the whole story is ridiculous. Yeah, like absolutely. Fifty Cent tracking down terrorists and <laughs> people stealing yeah. stuff that the he wants to get his ten million dollars for the the concert he played. Yeah, so he wants his crystal, his crystal skull back. <laughs> his crystal skull, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, the whole story is ridiculous, and um, but the. I got to say this, though. I mean, the game came out, it was like the early days of like uh, PS3, 360 and things like that, right? Or pretty yeah. early days. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, I mean, especially for what you guys were doing then, um, like gameplay wise, you know, like a lot of the over the shoulder uh, shooting and uh, you know, the cover mechanics. Uh, you could definitely tell it was of its time, but I was like, this game works. I mean, it, it's, it actually started out as a, as a very serious game. Um, it was in development for about 18 months, two years um, before it became 50 Cent Blood on the Sand. Uh, and we were working on a Tom Clancy title. We had several kind of vertical slices already done. Um, one, one of them was in Amsterdam. Um, one was in a, a kind of huge 
um, kind of farm field with farm buildings uh, and there's a small town section. So it's already kind of well developed and we're going down this kind of like stealthy game with lots of mechanics around kind of puzzles and kind of stealthy shooting and and all of that. And the the publisher at the time, we were going through all the different kind of green light stages with them. Uh, and they're going, yeah, this is great. And, you know, we like this mechanic here. And then uh, totally out of the blue, kind of like two years into it, they, they said, we want you to turn it into 50 cent game. <laughs> it's like, you what? <laughs> you know, they, they That's obviously crazy. got the, the IP to, to use 50 cents. And it was like, okay, we've just spent two years doing this stealthy puzzle kind of game and, you know, we're firing and, and, and lots of kind of thinking about it. And now you want us to throw into just kind of mayhem and madness with using 50 cent. Uh, and it's one of those times then when everybody gets together and goes, okay, how are we going to do this? Yeah, and you guys didn't make the first game, right? The the bulletproof game. That was no, a different. No, that's, different that was different. Um, yeah, I actually ended up working with someone who worked on the first one and, and kind of um, commented that the second one was you know, was was really good. So that that was a nice thing. Yeah, like I remember that first one being really disappointing in the sense that it kind of took itself seriously and the gameplay wasn't very good. And you guys just kind of did a complete one eighty where the gameplay was fun. The story was silly, but it needed to be silly. And I, I think it was pretty successful. Over, Particularly, I had no idea that that it was a different game beforehand. I mean, that, that's even more impressive that you're able to make a, a really fun game that you weren't even supposed to make. And again, you take you take the learnings from everything that you do. And, and the kind of first 18 months, two years of, of that title being in, you know, in production, um, you know, we were learning Unreal and using that within our pipeline and, and getting that up to speed. And, mm -hmm. you know, we were setting up a... An outsourcing pipeline to enable us to work in that and um so you take the positives you take the learnings uh, and you move on did you get to uh or the, the studio get to work at all with 50 cent and his team were they collaborative were they giving you all ideas or what was that relationship like we were, we were getting that through the publisher so so we didn't have any kind of hands-on kind of meetings with them or anything although i did get free tickets to go to a 50 cent concert when he was in the oh, UK, nice. that, so that was a, a good thing. I ended up uh, giving those to my my son and my daughter at the time, and they, you know, so I, I was king for that day because I got them tickets. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those. I've worked on you know a few titles that have had you know famous people associated with them, and very rarely, um, well, certainly the, the kind of project and position I was in at the time, they wouldn't come into the studio and and, and they wouldn't kind of. Uh, you know, actively be involved in things. You know, I've heard stories, you know, where the the famous person has has really kind of dictated all other things, and it just doesn't work. Then, it, you know, you've got to have that creative lead that that knows what they want from the game, knows where it's going to go. The worst for me, the, the worst experience I've had when working on games, and you you can see it from a mile off, is is that the executive producer or the creative director is playing lots of different games. So they come back the next month and go, we should really make it like this game that I'm playing because it's really fun and we should really do this with it. And it's like, that, it kills it dead. It kills it dead. You've got to have that yeah. one vision. You've got that one creative person that says, I'm going to take you on this journey. Come with me. It's going to be great. And I think one of the things that's probably the, it's probably the best thing to do is when you start making something is don't play anything while you're making it that's going to be like really directly related to what you're, what you're making. Yeah. Like the time for that is over at that point. 
Like you should have done that beforehand. Absolutely. And I suppose one of the other, the last fad I can remember is like all the Fortnite um, games that come out afterwards. And, you know, if a game has, if a game's already been released and you're working on your title now and you're perhaps two years into it, you've got another at least, what, two years for that to run and, and do its cycle. So if you're trying to copy a game that's been released now, that's going to be two years old by the time yours is released. Well, you've got to have that vision, you've got to stand by it, and you've got to kind of believe in it and, and get your team behind you and, and all go for that for that one thing. You know, I've, I've also been on, on titles where the vision has been absolutely rock solid. And, you know, and the, the one I'm thinking of is uh, Driver San Francisco. The mechanic on that I had never seen before and I've not seen since where you could just switch between cars, switch between players at an instant and go and join another race or be in a different car. And that that came from one vision, one clear vision, one clear direction that everybody was going towards. Yeah, I'm not saying it didn't have its problems, and, you know, it, it did go over, but they absolutely stuck to that vision. And I think the mechanic that came out of that is absolutely tremendous. Yeah, that's just going to make things also just a hell of a lot easier on your on your team. You don't have to like refactor a bunch of stuff or, yeah, or, or like get rid of a bunch of assets, uh, things like that. Yeah. And that's the thing. That's the thing now. I mean, uh, you know, back in the day, you, you were reliant on, on that one person making those choices. And a team can sniff out a producer who does that all day long now because everybody's got access to all of these games. Everybody plays them as much as the executive producers do. They can see what they're doing, and and the confidence just gets drained from the team when that happens. You know, you want to be able to follow that one person. Go, yeah, I'm with this. I'm with this guy. I'm I'm really going to make this happen. But as soon as they start going, oh, I've played this game and I've done that. He's focus goes, and you know, next thing you know, you're 20 million over over budget, and you've got to try and make this happen now, and it's got to be a success now. Yeah, and that shows also just like an extreme lack of confidence in the original design. Um, to the point where it's like you're so easily influenced by something else you think something else is so much better than what you're doing it's like well i have to do that or i can't compete and it's like well yeah then, then you're just compromising the whole thing absolutely and then yeah. you know there's the other thing as well where I've, I've seen a couple of projects that have, have tried tried kind of new mechanics and tried kind of reinventing the wheel when it really didn't need to be reinvented yeah uh, and, and that you see and you think it's not going to work and it doesn't matter how many times you tell them it's not going to work they just plow ahead uh, and then it's like you know you're two years into that and then you you have to stop and then go and use unreal because the method you were trying to do is never going to work in the first place right right i can't imagine having something that is uh you know you've been working on for two years and then it's like well that's not going to work it's like that should be sniffed out so fast that should be sniffed out like in this prototyping stage and when you're figuring out yeah. you know the fun of the game and it's like if you can't find the fun then it's okay like get rid of that prototype let's start another one you know, it's not the end of the world. We don't have to we don't have to be married to to it. That's why it's a prototype. It's it's usually well the, the two that I've kind of really come across and straight away I knew it wasn't going to work was you know procedurally creating maps and mm. creating objects and and buildings within those maps. And it's just like there's so many different equations that's going to trip you up by trying to do that. Yeah. Just build a different map. Just build a different map. Build three maps instead of building one map and schedule that in because you know how to do that and you know how that works. Yeah. And you're not going to gain anything spectacular on top 
of what you were doing otherwise. Uh, and you know, both the games that I've worked on that started out procedural, both of them, you know, despite being told by several people, this isn't going to work, went over, you know, years. Yeah. And then ended up having to use a different engine, and and that that's infuriating as well. And but you know, again, everything's a, a learning process. You take everything and kind of think, okay, well. If I get in that position, I won't do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there, I mean, I remember what was that game, No Man's Sky? There's like thousands of planets you could explore that were procedurally generated. And I remember that game launched. Everybody was like, "This didn't work at all," but like they kept working on it. And eventually, I think it got to a decent uh, spot where it was working well. I think that game's still still alive and kicking. But that was a it sounded like a very tumultuous uh, development process. You want to try and keep it easy uh, and adding adding extra. Extra things like yes, if it's if it's going to give you that extra ten percent, if it's going to be that thing that nobody's seen before, absolutely go for it. But if it's not going to bring you anything on top of if you just do three versions instead of yeah procedurally trying to change something on the fly, then don't do it. Yeah, especially for something like an environment that's just so much variance. Of course, you're going to run into problems with that. Whereas I could see something like uh, I can't remember the name of the studio, but there's uh, Shadow of Mordor games where it was like they're going to procedurally generate like bosses based on like certain characteristics. Like that worked out pretty well because that was a pretty limited in scope. It, it was it was but it was still a cool idea but you could tell like all right they 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 were like all right it doesn't have to go that crazy. If you want to do something and make it look like you're getting you know lots of usage out of it then just do it sparingly. Yeah. Yeah. Um okay so circling back to like some your your work now with uh with Adam Hawk um, what's the process like uh, for like a studio reaching out to you and getting the ball rolling in terms of, you know, they, ha- they have a need, obviously they need to fill and, and they reach out to you. Um, how does that begin? Well, it could be lots, lots of different ways. I mean, we, we have lots of returning clients. Um, you know, the, the way the industry is, you know, people move from studio to studio. So, you know, that's why if you, you make sure you do a good job for someone, you make sure you have a good relationship with them, that they'll, they'll take you to where they go next. Um, some people it could come through straight through the um, through the website. Um, we have some that come through our art stations, some come through LinkedIn, some come through personally. Um, I think you know if, if people want to work with us, they find a way of of getting in contact uh, with us. This year, I think we worked on around about eighty different titles with different studios, wow. and different clients, which is amazing. Yeah, and you know, having the insights to you know the games that people are going to be playing in three to five years now, because we're helping define them and structure those, is is a very exciting place to be. Um, so, you know, clients know where we are now. You know, we we're still we're still pushing. We still want to be bigger. We still want to make sure that you know we're the first two or three names on people's lips when they want to you know get work done. With uh, with eighty projects in a year, I mean, you guys must be meticulous as all hell with planning and, and really good at managing things. So, how do you define the scope of these projects with uh, with with your clients? The projects that we work with, um, we we worked with um, with PUBG. They they wanted um, you know the next game that we do. How do we you know what's this game about? What's the world about? How do we how do you def- define why people are jumping out of planes and you know, getting in a project at such an early stage like that and getting your teeth into is, is really rewarding for everyone. Um, but then sometimes you get projects come in that get so well-defined characters and IP that you 
you just have to be very careful and, and stick to that, you know, as true as you can be. And some of our engagements are three years, four years. Some can be three months. And then they'll come back in another six months to do another batch of work with us. Um, so, you know, because we've been going for so long now, 2009, we've, we've got a good handle on how long things take. And, you know, I've got to give props to our production team because they're, they're very good at scheduling and planning and, you know, coming at it from a creative point of view, you know, they understand that they, you've got to build in uh, a little bit of time for, for juniors, for example, to kind of get up to speed and get on track and feel comfortable. So mm-hmm. whenever we do things, we will make sure you've got that aspect and that time in there to, to help them succeed in doing that. I can't remember in the last five years, you know, a project where we undercooked it so much that we had to do any overtime because, you know, we don't do overtime. You know, the world that you you came from with your production side, you know, you can understand that if you do your job well, it really helps out everyone. You know, yeah. a, a, a bad production team or bad producer can absolutely put a, a project behind by years. And especially because you guys, you guys do a lot. I mean, you, you, you cover all, you know, UI production art, um, the list goes on. So, I mean, I think it's really cool, like the amount of services that you guys offer to clients. I mean, it's not just like one thing. It's like, oh, we, we just went through them for animation or whatever. It's like, no, you can, <laughs> you can go, you can go yeah. to, to your, your studio for just about anything. Yeah. And that's, that was a, that was a conscious thing. Uh, I mean, cause historically, um, people came to us for, you know, kind of UI, a little bit of animation, 2.5D animation, uh, and obviously concept work. But you know, for my extensive kind of dead background, I always wanted to get a little bit more of that kind of, let's see what else we can do for our clients. Let's involve, get some 3D, let's get some more UI, UX, let's get some more animation in there. Um, so I've been pushing towards that for the last um, two or three years. So now we're working with clients on live dead projects where we're creating 3D assets for the game. And we're taking that through from conception right the way through the design um, journey uh, to, to actual final 3D things in game. And, and that was the kind of holy grail that I was looking for as, mm-hmm. as a client. Just please, someone just take this brief for me and just run with it. You know, design, me, design the characters that we've asked for. Let's get some backs and forwards on that. Let's get some iteration on those and go away and build it for me and rig it and get it all animated. So, so that's now the services that, that we offer. So that's enabling us now to recruit a more broader kind of art group that we, we never really did before. Um, so just making sure that our clients are aware of that and and more so, you know, as I say, for recruitment purposes, that people in universities know that, you know, we can now start doing that with them. Um, so it's it's all, it's a really exciting time. You know, the next, next year, next two years are going to be really exciting for us. We're going to grow even more and offer more services. Um, we've... We've opened a, recently opened a new studio called Atomork Advance. Uh, that's ha- headed up by Nadir. And, and he, he looks after all the kind of technical aspects of art for us. So we're even expanding into that space. So working directly in engines, you know, working on tools, getting UI put in, getting the UX sorted out. Um, so holistically, we're, we're now able to offer more to more clients. And, and again, it's one of those things that if you look at our website, it's usually kind of two years old, the things that you see on there. 
because mm-hmm. we need permission to show things. We need to wait for games to come out and finish before we can show them. Um, so it's just kind of like the tip of the iceberg of what we do and kind of, of how much more we can do. So, so mostly getting the word out is, is really important for us. What do you think is the key or what has been the key for, for, for your studio in terms of building a good culture and making sure people are excited to come to work and, and things like that? You know, when, when, it, was, when it was founded, you know, it was founded by artists. So they, they understood how an artist works. You know, artists are very different people to, to programmers or to, you know, engineers. They're, they're very different people. And, you know, you've got to be able to work with them uh, and, and work with their individuality. You know, one of the things that I'm, I do in my spare time, I'm a, I'm a football coach, um, you know, I've coached since I've, you know, for about 12, 13 years. And, and with that, you kind of learn each individual play, you know, their habits, you know, when you need to put an arm around someone, you know, when you need to give someone a good kind of telling and, and a kind of a, a sterner kind of approach with them. Uh, and it's very much like that with artists. And most of our, most of our team uh, are from abroad. Most of them are under 25, 30. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them, it's usually their first job or their first time moving away from home. So we have a very good structure internally where we help it, help them out with all of that process. You know, I've, I've, um, you know, last year I, I did shopping for someone who was coming over who wouldn't have been able to get the shopping done because of the COVID restrictions. So I went out personally, did some shopping for them put it in their new flat ready for them to arrive. Uh, and that's the kind of thing that we do. We, uh, we realize that they're away from home. You've got to make it feel like home for them. You've got to make it feel comfortable. Um, otherwise, they won't come to work, won't, won't want to come to work. They won't want to be creative. And it's just going to impact on on clients. Um, so for us, absolutely, the first thing we've got to do is make sure all the artists are happy make sure they've got the tools they need to do the job uh, and make sure they can see the value in the work that they do and the value we put on them with the training and, and making them you know better artists overall so yeah absolutely you know i wouldn't take for granted at all that the you know the team are fantastic and, and they're the ones that are getting all the glory because they're the ones doing the job day to day so making them happy making sure they've got what they need um, and over the last few years as well, the, the kind of mental health side of that has, has become more important and grown. And all the diversity um, kind of things have come in now that we, we have to be absolutely aware of. Um, you know, you asked earlier about the kind of differences, you know, when I started and now. And that's one of the big things now is that you're just so sensitive about everybody's needs and making sure that people are uh, you know, confident and, and feel safe in the workplace they are. Yeah. And I love that too. And it sounds like you, you guys really put an emphasis on getting to know the individual and really getting to make sure that like you're talking about going to shop for somebody. Um, if I'm an employee and you do something like that for me, if I, um, then I'm going to run through a wall for you. You know, I'm, I'm ready to go yeah. to work. Super excited. Not that I wouldn't be, but now I'm really like, Oh man, this, this company really cares about me. Yeah. And, and you know, we we can't, we can't do everything, and you know, we we can't you know, we can't do everything that, that people want us to do. But you know, we do our absolute utmost best, and we and we show that. Um, you know, one of the big big two kind of things for me is is being open and you know honesty. Uh, and as long as you're open, people, as long as you're honest with people, 
um, you don't trip yourself up. You can't remember the, the lies that you've told or you know, promises that you've made that you knew you weren't going to make. So, so making sure you're honest and open, um, you know, it, it really does work wonders. All right, that wraps up this week's show. We want to thank Darren for being our guest. To find out more about Mudstack, head over to mudstack.com where you can follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and join our community on Discord. And of course, we want to thank you for listening. We'll see you next time on Clear as Mud. Mm-hmm.